it's another week and another opportunity for us to work together, to challenge each other, to stretch each other, to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. We enjoy these conversations every week. Well, they're kind of one-way conversations, so I guess I enjoy talking, and I hope you enjoy listening. But I hope it's I hope it's the kind of thing where you can respond to some of the things that that I mentioned that uh, God then mentions to you in His own unique and important way, because I want us to to think of these times as well, an opportunity to, to encourage each other to have faith in God. And I know I occasionally have heard people over the years talk about having faith, or you got to have faith, or I found my faith, or I lost my faith, or any number of ways that we use that word faith. And I've just tried to develop a way to think about it in concrete terms. It helps me I hope it helps you. But I, some years ago, was asking myself, well, what is faith really? We use it in a lot of ways. What, what is it exactly? And so I came up with this idea that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we spend our time during these programs having that opportunity to stretch ourselves in God's direction. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We have a wonderful group of people here, and it's our privilege and our delight to be able to talk with you every week and to help share a little bit of our journey together, a little bit of what God is saying to us in an attempt to help each other grow in God's direction. In other words, to help each other have that faith that I talked about, that absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And the more I think about that, the more I remind myself, the more it helps me, because I'm convinced that God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to have confidence in Him. And that little simple phrase, faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, just helps me, because I have always believed, and you probably have too, maybe not, but I've always believed that that God was trustworthy. And even if I wasn't sure of that, I always believed that I should be sure because I'd always heard people talk about how he was trustworthy. So that's kind of where we come from. And we just kind of share together and think about this idea of how can we have confidence in God? How can we remind ourselves, even in the ups and downs of life? And I was talking to somebody just today about it, one of those I guess I should say downs of life that I remember experiencing. And I remember at that time, I simply said to God, I trust you. I have absolute confidence in your trust, trustworthiness. I don't know. I didn't know at the time how the circumstances would work out. But I remember saying to God, however they work out, I know I can trust you because you will always be there. And that's what we want to help each other with, to have that kind of confidence so that we can not only know he will always be there, but when we put into practice the things that he teaches us to do, we can have confidence that that will result in the kind of good things happening that we all want to have. So that when we give ourselves away in one way or another, when we actually act on what we say we believe, when we kind of take the risk of faith, maybe we should say, 
we realize that that risk will be okay. Uh, I don't necessarily, necessarily think we should think of God as taking a risk that'll pay off, but really in some sense that's true because when we, when we take the risk of believing what God says and actually doing what he says to do, then we're hoping that that results in the right kind of things happening or the life we think we should have or the life certainly that God describes that we should have. So we're, we're trying to stretch our faith, and I hope you will allow God to stretch yours as well, because that's where the growing is, and, and we, always need, we always need encouragement to grow in God's direction. So I've been thinking about a lot of things. I, I tend to think about a lot of things, and then I forget about a lot of things that I think about. But I was thinking about this idea that I heard from Everett Piper. I have met Everett Piper. I don't really know him, except that I've been a little bit acquainted with some of the things that he does and some of his ideas, and, and I have grown to appreciate what he talks about and the, the things that he advances. Well, Everett Piper at one time was the president of a university, Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. He became the president there well, quite a number of years ago now. He's now retired from that presidency. He came to that university at a time when the university was really floundering. It was close to bankruptcy, and he set it on a course for success. I suppose it's not an overstatement, not, but I don't know the details to say he saved the university from collapse and was able to, to actually lift it from its near catastrophe to the point that it was thriving. And I learned much later after, after he had served at the university, and I really wasn't aware of what he was doing at the time because I didn't live anywhere close to Oklahoma. And so I, I was, wasn't really in touch with that. But I heard him talk about how when he became the president, he instituted four simple ideas or precepts that he used then to guide that university and to keep it on course, to reestablish what mattered, and to lead it forward into the future. And the four ideas are relatively simple, but I believe it was brilliant the way he put these together. And I have sometimes thought, well, I sure would be nice if I'd thought of those, those or something like that. But I don't, I don't worry about that because, you know, God gives us gifts in other people, and we need to celebrate the fact that God gave us this insight, not wish we had thought of it. Uh, we might wish we had, and, and yes, there's some healthy challenge in that. But mostly I'm thankful that, that he framed these things this way because I find them very helpful. And I'm hoping you will too. I don't think I've ever mentioned them. Not sure why, just I guess it didn't occur to me. But I was thinking about the program this week and I write a letter every week that I send out to the people of our church, people that are interested in getting it, mostly by email, a few by regular, what we now call snail mail, what used to be the only mail. But I was writing about these ideas, and it, it reminded me that, that maybe it would help you develop your confidence in God to think about putting these into practice in your life. And then I was also thinking, there's a Bible story that really demonstrates how one person followed these examples and actually put into, into practice the, the summation precept or the summation idea. So it started with, with these four ideas, and I'll just give them to you. Then we'll talk about them a little bit and think about how that applies to, to a, a situation, a Bible story that some of us are familiar with. 
But he said there are four simple ideas for, for the university, and one of them is the primacy of Christ. In other words, Christ comes first. It was a Christian university, so that kind of makes sense, the primacy of Christ. And then the priority of Scripture. That's a good reminder in our day. It was probably a good reminder in those days. I'm not so sure that the university did not value Scripture at that time, but it was a priority with Dr. Piper as president. So the primacy of Christ and the priority of Scripture. And then he talked about the pursuit of truth. I thought that was a very interesting idea, the pursuit of truth, because that really is what education is about in so many respects, pursuing that which is true, because we don't want to learn that which is false. How, how helpful is that? It's not. We want to know what is true and reliable because it benefits our life. And so he said in his university, they were going to concentrate on the primacy of Christ, the priority of scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. And I thought that last one was really interesting because it encapsulates the other three, because when we practice wisdom, it, it comes from a basis of putting Christ first, searching the scriptures and making that the priority resource, the priority source of the next step, truth. And if we want to pursue truth, we have to understand that the Bible gives us the truth. So I found that very interesting that, that he used those four ideas, which I doubt if anybody in that university would question, but I don't suppose anybody had put them together quite like he did. So if we are going to live that way in our lives, then we need to recognize that the primacy of Christ is the primacy of Christ. Christ comes first. That's not too hard for those of us who have followed Jesus, because we've learned that. We've learned that we need to put him first, and we goes all the way back to um, times when we were kids, and I remember a song, uh, Jesus and others and you, that's the way to spell joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. Well, it was a way to emphasize to kids that Jesus Christ comes first, and so we make Christ first in our lives, and that's the primary focus of our lives. And then closely related to that is the priority of Scripture. Well, if we want to know what it means to follow Jesus, then to keep him first, then we need to make Scripture a priority because it's the Bible that reveals to us what we know about God. We wouldn't know about God except that he's revealed it to us in the pages of the Bible and in the person of Jesus. And so we make the Scriptures a priority so that we can keep that front and center in our lives and in our behavior. Well, then he adds in the pursuit of truth. And I thought that's really interesting because we have lived in a time when, when people want to deny that there is anything called truth. They want to deny that there is anything that's reliable, transcendent, that's true for all people in all places at all times. But we know from the revelation of God in Christ and from the study of the scriptures that teach us about God and about his gift of Christ, that there is such a thing as that which is true, and we need to pursue that which is true on every level. And sometimes you may even have heard someone somewhere say, well, all truth is God's truth. And, and there's some, all right, I know, truth to that. 
And so that helps us, this idea that we need to pursue that which is true. We don't want to get tripped up in that which is false. We certainly don't want to believe that which is not true. We want to believe that which is true and right so that we can have the right foundation in our lives, the right direction for our lives. So the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, and the pursuit of truth. And really, I don't think for a lot of people that have been followers of Jesus, that's much of a surprise, or or I don't think most people would think that's much of a stretch to, to celebrate the primacy of Christ, to make Scripture the priority, and make the pursuit of truth an essential part of what we do. I don't think people would, would tend to deny that very much, um, because they understand that Christ has to be first, and they understand that in order to make Him first, Scripture has to be a priority, and they understand that because of their commitment to Christ, that truth matters, because it was Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we get that. But what I've noticed is that a lot of times people struggle with that fourth idea, the practice of wisdom. Now, I think most of us would like people to think we are wise. I'm not sure too many of us think about that, really. We don't we don't try to position ourselves, I don't suppose, as being wise. Uh, we wouldn't deliberately do that. We might think that'd be a little arrogant to, to call ourselves wise. I was stunned one time, and I took it as a compliment, but I really didn't know what to do with it. Still don't. When, when somebody remarked and affirmed me that said I was wise, I wasn't sure why they thought that, because I've, I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. Uh, how does that equal wisdom? Well, the practice of wisdom was the fourth idea that President Piper emphasized at his university and that put them and kept them on track. Well, I think people have struggles with this idea of the practice of wisdom, because it's really relatively easy to, to say, well, Christ is primary, Christ is first. Uh, many people will say that. I had someone say, to me recently that somebody that they knew knew how important Christ was to them, how important their, their walk with Christ, their faithfulness to God was, was to them. So I think people kind of get that. A lot of people understand that, at least between their ears. And I think the same is true of the Scriptures. A lot of people understand that the Scriptures have to be held in high regard, we get into trouble when we devalue them or denigrate them or ignore them. And I think a lot of people understand that we don't want to know what's false. We want to know what's true. We don't want people lying to us. We want to find out that which is true. But I have noticed over my lifetime that I think people really struggle with that last one, the practice of wisdom. Now, I don't know if President Piper would have said it this way, so I don't want to I don't want you to think this is his idea. This is really my idea. But as a pastor, I've noticed that, that it's harder for people to actually put into practice that which the Bible says we should do and that which the Bible says we should not do. Often we're rather inclined and rather quickly in, inclined to justify that which we want to do rather than to think about that which we must do, and so put into practice this idea of wisdom. Because the practice of wisdom is really living out what the Bible tells us. 
is truth. So if God tells us the truth, then it, it makes sense that we should put it into practice, and that would be the practice of wisdom. But it requires a level of maturity to actually practice wisdom. It requires a level of commitment to actually practice wisdom. You know, we can give lip service to the first three, but when it comes to the practice of wisdom, we either do it or we don't. You know, it means doing what we know is right, no matter who disagrees with us or criticizes us or even who we might disappoint. Practices, practicing wisdom is when we demonstrate that the first three ideas really matter to us and we actually put Christ first. So I think we really need to, to give careful thought to this idea of the practice of wisdom. And in terms of the way we, we talk about faith on this program, isn't the practice of wisdom when we demonstrate absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Aren't we holding back something on our confidence in God if we refuse to live a life that practices the wisdom that God gives us in the Bible? the truth that God reveals to us in the pages of Scripture that we have chosen to make a priority, the truth that God reveals to us from the Christ that he sent, the Savior of the world that we say is primary, isn't the point that we actually believe all of that when we actually practice wisdom? And isn't that where the the, the old cliche certainly comes into comes to mind, that we where the rubber meets the road, that we actually have to practice what God teaches us. So I want to encourage you, if you're wondering about your faith, uh, I want to encourage you to, to grow in God's direction by practicing wisdom. When, when God speaks to you and says, uh-uh, don't do that, and you listen and respond, then you're practicing wisdom and you're demonstrating confidence in God because you're trusting him and you're trusting that what he says to you is right. And so this is a way that we can add another, another not layer, but maybe layer, but another concrete understanding of this idea of faith. Well, that's a little overview of these three precepts from President Piper, the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. There is a story in the book of Genesis of Joseph. I think it starts in about Genesis 37. It's several chapters long. It's a quite an engaging story and quite interesting, and I would encourage you to read it. I'm not going to read all of the chapters because it goes all the way into chapter 45 and, and even some beyond that. But I just want to read a portion of it from chapter 45 that kind of summarizes the story. Briefly, Joseph was not well liked by his brothers, okay? They just didn't like him. He told them stories about dreams he had where they would bow down to him. They didn't like that. His father treated him honorably in ways that they became jealous of. And so they had the opportunity and they took it and sold him into slavery. And he was taken as a slave into Egypt. Well, there he began to serve in a household, did very well, represented himself very well, advanced in the household until he was accused by the lady of the house of misbehavior towards her, and her husband believed her, although Joseph was innocent, and had him thrown into prison. Well, even in prison, he did really well. He helped the other prisoners. He rose in the ranks of prisoners, as it were, 
and began to, to serve in that prison as a respected prisoner. He interpreted dreams with God's help with a couple of prisoners who were taken back to the, to the palace with the Pharaoh, where they promptly forgot about Joseph, one of them because he was executed and the other one because he forgot until sometime later. And Pharaoh had a dream and needed Joseph's help. And they remembered Joseph. He was brought into Pharaoh. He, he honored God and gave God credit for helping him understand the dream, the dream that famine would come to Egypt and that area of the world, and they needed to prepare. And Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph that he put him in charge of all of the preparations for that. He was second in command to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. So he went a long way from a pit from which his brothers extracted him to sell him into slavery, to serving in a household in Egypt, to being tossed into prison and forgotten, to now being promoted to be second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. So he made the preparations, the famine hit, and people began to come to Egypt to collect grain because the Egyptians had built great stores of grains so that people would not starve to death, and including his own family. They had been hit by the famine in their own land, and food was running out. They had heard there was food in Egypt, so their father sent the brothers. And remember, these are the brothers that tossed Joseph into a pit, sold him into slavery. Their father sent them to Egypt, not knowing that it was Joseph, of course, that was in charge of all this, but to go to Egypt where they could buy food so the family would not starve to death. Well, there's a little more to the story than we're going to talk about now when they come down to Egypt and they encounter Joseph. He recognizes them. They did not recognize him. Uh, we wouldn't expect them to. But finally, through a process of, of several encounters over time, we read in Genesis 45, starting with verse 3, of how Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. Now, I want to read these few verses from the New Living Translation. I don't think I've used that one on the program, but it tells the story well. Many English translations do. You choose the one that helps you. But here in Genesis chapter 45, verse 3, Joseph says, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers, is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you, and he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt, so come, come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen, where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, 
your flocks and herds and everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all your animals will starve. And then it skips a few verses and ends with this. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. So this is a remarkable story of how Joseph, through so many ups and downs, actually practiced wisdom. He did what God said. And notice, in spite of the betrayal by his brothers, Joseph said that God sent him there to preserve their lives. Now, this is a remarkable thing. This is a remarkable statement. Here is Joseph, who was in a position that he could have had those brothers killed. It wouldn't have been questioned. He was that powerful. He could have had them killed, but he didn't. He recognized by practicing wisdom all these years, he recognized that God had sent him ahead to preserve their lives so that they would not die and to bring, bring salvation, uh, not in the spiritual sense we think of it, but to save the lives of, of his entire family by inviting them to Egypt where they would be well cared for because the famine was going to go on, as he said, for five more years. So I wonder if, if you and I could, could stretch our confidence in God by practicing the wisdom that Joseph displays here by saying, you meant it for bad because you wanted to get rid of me, but it was, wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. God knew that I needed to be here. And he says, don't be upset. He said this to them, and don't be angry with yourselves. This was God's work to preserve our lives. So if we're going to practice wisdom, we have to approach the challenges of our lives in the same way that Joseph did. He's this wonderful illustration of that, how he overcame this devastating experience of being sold into slavery and had an open heart toward his brothers where he could forgive them, and he understood what happened as God's work in his life and in theirs to bring about something good. Or you might think of it this way. This is how God redeemed a terrible situation where brothers betrayed their brother and sold him into slavery. How God took that terrible, that terrible act that they did and redeemed it and made good out of it. You see, if we practice wisdom and if we begin to understand the things that take place in our lives the way Joseph did, and if we begin to understand that God works in our lives and we can trust him through the ups and through the downs, and haven't we all had plenty of things we wish we hadn't experienced? Haven't we all had disappointments? Many of us have had betrayals. This is the stuff of life. Maybe not quite as bad as Joseph had it. I hope you haven't had it that bad, but we've all had situations that have happened to us where people have behaved in ways they shouldn't, where incidents happened, events unfolded in ways that caused us to be on the receiving end of some very unpleasant circumstances. But we need to begin to understand that God works in all of that and redeems all of that when we have faith, when we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. 
So the first part of our challenge today is to is to ask ourselves, and, and I want to encourage you to ask yourself. You know, this is a real growing edge. People sometimes wonder, are they okay with God? Is God okay with them? Well, one of the things that helps us with that is for us to begin to realize that we don't need to be blaming every situation on God or somebody else. Yes, there may be reasons we can identify. I'm not naive. I can identify reasons in my life. You probably can too. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying deny reality or truth or what happened to us. I'm saying we begin to understand things differently and begin to realize that in spite of the, all of the stuff that we can trust God to bring good for us and the people we care about when we have confidence in him and begin to understand that God works in all these things. And in amazing ways, he redeems the evil things around us to make good things happen in our lives when we trust him. And isn't it true that at the end of time, when all the things are made right, when all of these wrong things are made right, then we will really know that God is the God who we can trust and we can practice wisdom now and forever because we have absolute confidence that he is trustworthiness or that he is trustworthy. So I just want you to think about your life in different terms now. Just think about maybe God was up to some things in your life and in mine that he wanted to use or may have preferred didn't happen, but he turned it around because he's gracious and merciful to us. And he brought good things into our lives in spite of maybe the intentional evil someone had in mind for us. Well, in just a moment, we're going to take a break and maybe you need a little break to think about some of these kind of things. Maybe you need a little time to pray and thank God and to reorient your thinking. And when we return, we're going to talk some more about these, some of these same ideas in a little different context so that we can have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens 
When a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty, most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we challenge each other to stretch our faith, to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we stretched ourselves a little bit the first part of the program. We talked about the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, the practice of wisdom. I got those four ideas from former President Everett Piper, who was the president of Oklahoma University, or Oklahoma Wesleyan University, for many years, saved the university, set it on a course to thrive, and it did thrive. And so we then unpacked a little bit this idea of the practice of wisdom through the life of Joseph. And, and I suggested that you and I need to be careful to think about our lives and the things that happen in our, in our lives, the disappointments, the the hurts, sometimes we say, the, the uh, intentional things that people do to hurt us. We need to think of them the way Joseph did when he said to his brothers, you sold me into slavery and you meant it for evil, but God, he's the one that sent me here because he knew I needed to come to save our lives. And so Joseph was able to, to rise above that because he had confidence in God. He had faith. He had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So now I want us to turn in a little different direction. And I want us to kind of think out loud about some words of Jesus in Luke chapter six. And, and when I say think out loud, that's often the way I think about these things. I don't know that everything we do here on the program is intended to be a polished, completely well thought out idea. I hope they're helpful ideas and I hope we think them through a little bit, but in some ways, I approach this as we're thinking out loud together. After all, this is the America Out Loud Network, so why can't we think out loud? So we're going to do that about this idea of the practice of wisdom, and we're going to use the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27, ending with verse 38. Now, Jesus is, is saying all of these words in a teaching or sermon to the people, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation again. I find it a very helpful one, and I thought I haven't used this for maybe ever on the program, and, and I would like to introduce you to the idea that there are many good English translations, and you need to find one you understand and will read and use. So this is Luke chapter 6 from, uh, from the New Living Translation, starting verse 27, the words of Jesus. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And 
If you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, and or it will all come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Well, now this is a very challenging series of statements from Jesus. It's really, in many respects, the application of what we call the great commandment, where Jesus summarized the whole law and said, we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves." He said, that's what summarizes the whole law. And so we see here in these statements, Jesus is actually showing us, well, that's what this means. This is, the, to use the same description we did earlier, this is the practice of wisdom. In verse 31, he says, do to others as you would like them to do to you. Well, what do we call that? We call that the golden rule. I've been thinking about how to kind of summarize all of this as we're thinking out loud about it. And, and there's a lot of ways we could go. I'm sure you realize that. And, and if you think about this for any time, you'll be able to begin to put things together uh, in, in a way that makes sense to you. But I, but I was thinking, you know, it kind of applies to the story of Joseph too. Uh, but it really, in so many senses, what, what God is saying to us when we practice wisdom, when we do what he asks us to do, when we understand life through his eyes, and we begin to see that, that what people mean for evil toward us, God uses for good and is able to redeem. And I, and I was thinking about it, and I said, you know, here's, here's kind of what it means for us. It means our actions are not determined by the behavior of knuckleheads. Well, I was trying to think of a polite word for that, and knuckleheads was the best one I came up with. Uh, sometimes I say it this way, our actions are not determined by the behavior of sorry rascals. Well, same idea. You understand that, you know, there are people that, that we will encounter, and I don't know whether in your life they do it intentionally or they're just, they're just the kind of people that, that do things that, that hurt other people. Maybe something desperate happened to them. And so they just don't know how to deal with life and they've never encountered the, the healing and wholeness of Christ. And so they lash out in one way or another, but it's really true, isn't it? When we look at this practice of wisdom in the life of Joseph and his example of forgiving his brothers, when we listen to what Jesus said here in these very challenging verses, it's really true that our actions are not to be determined by the behavior of knuckleheads. Or maybe we should put it a different way, and some of you might think this is a little more spiritual way to put it. Okay, you, you take your pick. 
But really, isn't what the Bible is telling us, isn't the example of Joseph, isn't this profound teaching from Jesus saying to us that we need to act toward other people the same way God acts toward us? Now, that's really a helpful way to think of that. Sometimes we don't want to treat the knuckleheads in our lives, the sorry rascals in our lives. Sometimes we don't want to treat them well because, well, they didn't treat us very well, and they maybe didn't. I'm not going to argue with that. But, you know, sometimes when we get so, uh, well, let's just call it what it is, self-righteous, that, that we deserve better treatment than they gave us, and we're just not sure we're going to be nice to them, or maybe we're going to get revenge. A lot of talk of revenge in our world. Watch out. Don't fall into that trap. Maybe it would help us to, to really come to grips with ourselves. And some of us don't think we've been all that bad in our lives. And, and I hope you haven't found yourself at one point in life in some truly desperate situa situation where you wandered so far from God, you ended up where you never imagined ending up. I hope you haven't had that experience, but if you have, the good news is wherever you are now or wherever you were then, God was there with you, and God was merciful to you. God was merciful, is merciful to all of us, and isn't that what he's asking us to do in these verses? I find it so interesting that, uh, you know, he talks about uh, if you only love those who love you, why should you get any credit for that? and even sinners love those who love them. And he says that, that in response to three different statements, even sinners do that much. Well, I hope to shout, a lot of us don't want to think of ourselves as sinners, so we need to think of ourselves and act the way a saint would. And a saint would act in a way that, you know, if, if somebody has made themselves your enemy, then you still need to treat them with love and kindness. You do good to them, as verse 27 says. And it says that we should bless those who curse us, verse 28. You know, I haven't heard this for a while, but a few years ago, I began to hear it. Maybe I just noticed it more then. People would say, well, I don't have to put up with that. And referring to something, usually it was someone and the way they treated them. And, and you know, there's a continual temptation for us to think that way, even if we don't say it out loud. I'm not going to be so bold as to guess that you may have thought that about somebody. You may be thinking about that of somebody now, but doesn't God call us to treat people the way God treats us and for us to rise above that? And isn't it true the only way we can do that is by the resources and the grace of God? And isn't it true that if God calls us to treat people that way, he will help us do it? Well, of course, all that's true. And we know that between our ears. That's what I said earlier. We, we understand because the Bible tells us some of these things, and we understand that to be the truth. But practicing wisdom and putting it into practice in the face of that sorry rascal, that's where the challenge comes. And there's other kinds of challenges too. Now, one of the verses here talks about how if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer them the other. Well, I don't believe from the weight of Scripture that that's a, a call for allowing people just to give us a beating whenever they want to. I don't think that's ex at all what God is meaning here. There is some sense that some people who have studied this far more than I have and who helped me when I, when I study these things, that, that that's a reference to the way, the ritual way someone was put out of the synagogue was with a slap on the cheek. And so 
they wonder if perhaps what this is referring to is not so much a violent encounter, but that it refers to rejection. See, if someone is rejected from the synagogue, that's a serious thing because their whole community is, is telling them to go pound sand. And what God is saying to us here, if someone rejects you, bear it up, bear the rejection. That's okay. You have not been diminished because your identity is not in their rejection. Your identity is in Christ. That's why he is primary. That's why he's first. And so we don't need to worry about those things. Might it hurt? Yeah, more than just a slap on the cheek to be rejected. Of course, nobody wants to be rejected. But maybe we need to think that, you know, that rejection might be more, uh, yeah, I guess I'll say it, more a reflection of the person who's rejecting you than you. Now, that doesn't mean that we're judging them because we read about judgment later on in these verses. It just means that we need to have a different perspective about things, and we need to allow God to work in our hearts so that we don't become those people. In other words, we, we bear the losses of life. We bear the, the hardships of life because that's what Christ did for us, and we have patience with the sorry rascals in our lives because Christ has patience with us. Uh, we often think that, that we do pretty well, and a lot of times we want to pat ourselves on the back, but isn't it true that we have a lot of growing to do, and we should, we should be grateful that God is kind to us and gives us the extra opportunity? There's another reference in here that's, that's quite interesting, and, and I don't know for sure that this, this doesn't mean that we should should give to people. I think it, it does. It, but in verse 29, it says, if someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Well, I haven't seen very many people give their coats and shirts away. I, I did that on a mission trip. I took everything that I needed for the trip, but I deliberately decided long before I left that I wasn't bringing all that stuff home because I knew the people what I, that I was visiting could benefit from that. So I left all of the things that I war on that trip I left behind. I, I asked, would it be okay? And, and, and somebody laughed at me and said, well, they do know how to do laundry. I think they can take care of it. I, okay. I, but was that, that's the idea that, that we risk giving things away because we trust that God will take care of us. And so I think in some respects, that idea of giving your coat and your shirt means take the risk to love somebody in a concrete way bear the loss if you don't get it in return, because you trust Christ to manage your life and to provide for your needs. Isn't that what he asked us to do? Yeah, of course, that's what he asked us to do. And can't we trust him? Well, of course we can. You see, we don't want to ask what's in it for me. Oh, you've been around people like that. They're always asking, well, what am I going to get out of it? Why should I do that? What am I going to, how am I going to benefit? What's in it for me? That's not what Jesus teaches here. He says the practice of wisdom is to take the risk of love and to give away what you could keep, but that someone else maybe needs. And so you need to treat them with kindness, with compassion. Don't judge them for their circumstance or their even their demandingness, because we don't want to be judged. Don't condemn them, or that condemnation comes back to us. It says in verse 37 that we should forgive others and that then we will be forgiven. That's a powerful statement. 
And we don't ask what's in it for us. We just give as Christ gave to us. That's one reason I'm, I'm really, really proud of my church is because we don't have a lot. We aren't a wealthy church by any means. We have what we have by the kindness of God and the generosity that God has given, shown to us and to our church by the faithfulness of God's people over the years. But we give what we have, and we have a number of opportunities to allow community groups to use our building, and, to, and we do that freely and happily. We're glad we have a place we can share. We have been saying that we're happy to share what God has given us. It might not be much, and most people would say it's not, and I wouldn't argue with them, but that's not the point. The point isn't do we have some extravagant facility to share with people. The point is that what God has given us, we then share with other people. And so our church tries to put that into practice. So we have scout groups that meet here. We have other church activities from, there's another church that uses our building from time to time. We had a wedding here last week that didn't involve anyone from our church, but people needed a place to get married. That's fine. We're happy for them to do that. We, we want to be that kind of people that are generous in the way we give what God has given to us. You know, and that maybe we should sum it up by, by looking at the last verse here, and, and it simply starts out with one word, give. It says, give, and you will receive. Now, that's an amazing, an amazing connection. So many people get real nervous when pastors talk about giving. We shouldn't be nervous about that, because listen to what God says. The words of Jesus, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. And you know, when you talked about giving, putting our money in the offering every Sunday, people get a little tense about that. Well, um, you really think I should give that to God in the church? And my answer is, well, it's not real important what I think. It's real and real important, really, really, real important what God thinks. And God says, give. And he has admonished us in the Bible. Yeah, we need to give to him. We generally define that as a tithe. And I remember years ago hearing a pastor talk about that, and he would talk about that in his church. And he said, people would come and ask him and say to him, pastor, do we, do we pay our tithe on the amount that we take home? Or do we pay our tithe on the, on the bigger amount before taxes are taken out? And that pastor had a very wise answer to that. He said, well, which amount do you want God to bless the larger amount or the smaller amount? And I thought that's exactly right. Because see, when it comes down to this kind of this kind of thinking that's all through this, this teaching of Jesus, whether it's about giving or whether it's about blessing, it all comes down to generosity of heart. And it's really about our hearts, not about our money, not about anything else. It's really about our hearts. And so when God comes along and says, don't judge, that's a heart issue. When he comes along and says, don't condemn, that's a heart issue. When he comes along and says, forgive, that's a heart issues. So it follows when he says then in verse 38, give, that we should begin to realize, oh, that's a heart issue. Generosity isn't about amount. It's about our hearts. How easy it would be for us to say, well, if I had a million dollars, I would give God and you fill in the blank. 
Well, really? Are you sure about that? Well, I hope you are. But generosity isn't about having a million dollars and then you could give God a big portion of that. Generosity is about giving what God has entrusted to your care now. And we give to God and to other people what they need and really what we need because we give forgiveness because we need forgiveness. We do good to them because we need people to do good to us. We are compassionate to the people around us because we need compassion ourselves. That's the idea behind this. And, and the whole point of, the, of this passage is get your heart right. Get your heart right. Joseph's heart was right. How else do you explain how he managed all those years of slavery, all those years in prison, all those years thinking, how did I get here? But in spite of every opportunity to have a pity party, Joseph rose above that and in the end said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the practice of wisdom. When God says to us and when Jesus says to us that, that we need to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us, that's a heart issue. You know, you've heard the expression, haters going to hate. Well, they are, but we don't have to be them. We need to be people who extend to them the love of Christ, the kindness that God has extended to us. We need to share with them what they need in a way that helps them. We need to do unto them as we would like people to do unto us. And we need to have enough confidence in God to believe that even though it feels like we are losing something by giving it away, we recognize we haven't lost anything. A man named Stan Toller said some years ago, stands with the Lord now, he said, giving to God is always a matching gift. And he's right. That's what these verses are talking about. Giving to God is always a matching gift. I think I would alter that statement a little bit, maybe with Stan's permission, and say giving to God is always at least a matching gift. Because when he talks about, in verse 38, that your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap, that was a vivid image that those people would have understood. See, that's how they measured grain. When they would go to the market to buy grain, there would be a measure. And he's describing how, imagine that measure that God is giving back to you, pressed down, so they put every little last bit of grain they can in that measure, in that container, and they pack it in, they shake it together so that they make room for more, they pack it some more, and then they fill it up so that it's actually running over, so it's more than the container can, can contain, and then it's poured into your lap. Now, that's a reference to the garments that they wore in those days, would have had a pouch in that garment where they would have had the grain poured into that pouch. That's how they carried it home. And so when it talks about this, that's a very real image. Everybody that went to buy grain would want that kind of benefit from their purchase. A full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into their lap. And the Bible sums that up. Jesus sums that up by saying the amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You have trouble with God and knowing that you're forgiven. Maybe you need to be more of a forgiver so that you'll experience God's forgiveness. You see, that's the idea. Maybe you're concerned that, that um, well, you're just not getting the blessings you need. 
well, maybe you need to bless people more. Maybe you need to be more generous with your kindness and your compassion. That's the point of this lesson from Jesus. And really, generosity changes everything because it's about our hearts, not about what we have, not about money. It's about our hearts. And God wants to grow our hearts so that we have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness, because that's what faith is. And so I want to encourage you to do what the Bible says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And that's my prayer that you will find the peace of Christ. That in the midst of all of this, you will learn the lesson that God wants you to give the same way he has given to you. He wants you to be generous to others with forgiveness, with compassion, with mercy, all of those things that are described in Luke chapter 6, because God has been merciful, compassionate, kind to us. And he wants us to do that sort of thing so that the peace of Christ will be with you. So my blessing for you today is that the peace of Christ will be with you, that you will have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And as you express that confidence, you will have peace. Carry that peace till next week, and I'll be back and we'll talk some more. I hope to see you then.